to The Anthroposopher, where we bring anthroposophy to life through interviews, conversations, and explorations. I'm Laura Scappatici, your host. How do we create vivid, living, imaginative pictures of peace in our time? In this interview with Olivia Stokes Dreyer from the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding in Massachusetts, we explore her experiences around the world in war-torn countries and bring it back to Main Street USA as we talk about reconciliation and understanding and Rudolf Steiner's perspective on the human being and the ways that we can meet each other in peace. We hope this inspires you to create some pictures of peace in your own town and in your own heart. Hi, Olivia. We have so much to talk about. Just so people are tuning in, uh, we don't know when they'll tune in, but right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic with the coronavirus and many of us are uh, in shelter in place situations. And uh, we had set up this interview previous to that, but I think actually this interview is even more relevant right now uh, because of all of the political tension and all of the economic upheaval and division that's happening in the world due to the state of affairs because of the virus. So anyway, I'm really uh, glad to be here with you. So tell me a little bit about yourself. I usually ask people how they encountered anthroposophy and I don't think the center is Self is directly anthroposophical, um, but I know you are connected to anthroposophy, yes. so maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So I first encountered it when I was, gosh, 20, so a very long time ago. And I was on my way to work with the Gandhian movement in India. Uh, the college where I was uh, had a program where they paid your way to go work in a non-Western country. You found uh, an opportunity. And I had found this opportunity to work with the Gandhian movement there. And I was stranded in England for a while waiting for my visa to come through because the U.S. was on the wrong side of the then war with Pakistan. I was having trouble getting a visa. And hitchhiking around England, I met some Emerson College students, Emerson College being based on the work of Steiner. And I uh, went with them to visit the college. I got intrigued and ended up uh, working in the biodynamic garden at the college uh, while I waited for my visa. And heard a few things about anthroposophy, but I have to say there were little snippets that were very out of context and uh, sounded a little strange to me. And my heart was set on getting to India and I was interested in Buddhism and Eastern mysticism. So I didn't pay too much attention, but lo and behold, but I loved the farm and loved other things I saw at Emerson and was definitely intrigued. And then lo and behold, when I got to India, I went to learn Hindi. And where I went, this was you know, way back in 71, uh, the, for language school happened to be uh, the spot where one of two then Waldorf schools were in India. <laughs> so what are the chances, right? So I had been given uh, this address also by the, uh, co-founder of Emerson College and connected with the school and spent my afternoons volunteering there. It was a great way to learn Hindi. The founder of the school kept offering me the contents of his library of Steiner books and I politely declined. <laughs> and then it was two years later or three years later actually, when I got back to the US, I'd been back at, in, at university for a year 
that I uh, met Alexander Dreyer, who became my husband. And um, he was already very engaged with anthroposophy. And at first, I thought he seemed wonderful, and I just wasn't so sure about anthroposophy. And I was like, oh my gosh, here it comes again. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it didn't take long for me to overcome whatever uh, initial resistance was there. And uh, then he and I went to Emerson College together. And uh, that was in the mid 70s now, and that was just a wonderful time. And so, yeah, anthroposophy is very much shaped who I am and how I think about the world, having met it at such a young age. Wow, that's a beautiful story. I always love to hear the, these um, stories where people encounter it and they encounter it again right. and then they encounter it and then they're like, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. Okay. So I actually, um, we have a national conference every year and last year our conference was in Atlanta, Georgia, and we worked with some writing from Marjorie Spock who talks about basically social intelligence as a way to talk about it yeah. and conversation and listening and Martin Luther King and also Rudolf Steiner. And one of the speakers, John Shuchart, he's from the house of peace right. in Ipswich. Yes. He said, um, anthroposophy is a peace movement and so i thought maybe we could sort of segue into um the work that you're doing and that the karuna center has done um in relationship to that statement so sure yeah. sure and you know maybe, maybe i could share a little bit about what karuna center does and then um and give a couple of examples and then also uh share what Broadly speaking, I feel like I bring to it out of anthroposophy. So kind of making that bridge that you were just suggesting, because um, I think it's true. I think it is a, a peace movement uh, for a variety of reasons. But um, Karuna Center was founded in the mid-90s by, um, so it was the time of the Bosnian War, the Rwandan genocide, started by a woman who lives in my area named Paula Green, who was a psychologist and a peace activist. And she was deeply concerned about the growing number of uh, ethnic and religious conflicts that was springing up around the world. You know, after the Berlin Wall fell, everybody thought it would be an era of peace. And all these countries started breaking up into these internal wars, these civil wars where, you know, neighbors were killing neighbors. And, and I think she recognized that, uh, the wounds from those wars would be deep, they are from any war, but that this was not armies against armies and that something tore at the social fabric and destroyed trust and that you wouldn't uh, address those wounds just with peace treaties, you know, political settlements, that something had to be rebuilt from the bottom up. So she began doing that work. Um, I met her in 1999, so I had been working as a psychotherapist for some 16, 17 years at that point, had also been involved in start helping to start the Walder School in our area. And I, I think partly because of my experience in India and working with the Gandhian movement and the fact that our sons were growing up, I was feeling this um, deep urge to uh, work in some way with the developing world. 
and uh, I accompanied her to Bosnia and saw firsthand the work she was doing um, with, at that point it was with Bosnian Serb and Bosnian Muslim educators who had been on opposite sides of the war. I became the director in 2010. Um, Karina Center has worked now over 25 years in some 30 odd countries with many different sectors, working with religious leaders, civil society leaders, educators, parliamentarians, um, it really depends upon who invites us and what local partners feel are most needed to rebuild trust and rebuild uh, really critical connections. And we always also try to make that connection between more grassroots community and those policymakers so that the sort of same you know, structural problems or policies that are creating deep grievances and divisions aren't just continued. We work both after conflict, so reconciliation work, forgiveness work, but then also we're very often working to help bridge growing divides in order to prevent conflict in the hopes that things won't devolve further into violence. And core to the work is the dialogue work we do uh, with groups of really helping people to walk in each other's shoes so that they can really understand what the grievances of other groups are, ways in which they felt marginalized and oppressed, not listened to, ways in which their identities have not, cultural or religious identities have not been respected or have been threatened. Helping groups to understand that, that they have very different perceptions of their own histories, understanding the various roots of a conflict, how it's escalated, what its impacts have been, but then also what it's going to take to transform and to heal it. So those are the kind of our, our focuses really, and helping people really have deep conversations with each other, deep and authentic conversations with each other is, um, is really at the heart of it. I'm thinking of the deep political divides in this country and um, racial divides and, and economic yeah. divides. But then I got on your newsletter and I see that you're working with people that, this is a quote from someone that you worked with, says, I learned constructive ways to handle the anger caused by everything I experienced during the genocide. This is deep deep work. You know, I might walk by my neighbor's house and they have one sign out. They walk by mine and I have another sign out and we think we can't talk to each other. We're talking about genocide here. So this is another level of work that, um, yes, certainly people have experienced this kind of thing in our country in a way with, uh, you know, racial oppression and systemic racism. And wow, what a level to be working at. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like sure. how, how do you even find peace around these sorts of things? Ironically, in my experience, especially in working places like Rwanda, where I've worked a lot over the years, after that level of catastrophe and total destruction of a society and human relationships, you also find, not across the board, but you find this very, very deep yearning for a different future and for repairing those relationships and a kind of shock and horror at what happened 
and a sense of we've got to create something different for our children, for the next generations. And so it's, there's actually a readiness. I mean, there's both a deep, there's the deep trauma, there's the deep, often bitterness, but also side by side with that, a readiness. And maybe just as an example, I could share with you about our recent work in Rwanda. So we've worked there on and off with different groups since 2000, uh, since I st first started working with the center. But this most recent program was a three-year program funded by um, USAID, and we developed it with local partners because we knew various groups from working there over the years. And it came at, it was coming at a point, you know, the Rwandan genocide was 25 years ago, but it takes a long time to heal these wounds. And what was starting to happen in Rwanda is those who had been in prison for participating in the genocide were returning to their communities. Because so many participated because it was government encouraged that they couldn't possibly keep them in prison for long. And they realized that they were incited to participate. There had to be some personal responsibility, but it was also important for them to get back into their communities and for, the, for there to be a reconciliation process. So we tried to develop a kind of a pilot program that would help set a model um, of how this could be done. So we worked with three local organizations one uh, does community dialogue and had experience already in training uh, facilitators to address just everyday tensions at the community level, but also the tensions that would arise as the, the ex-perpetrators return to their communities around land, around you name it, all kinds of issues. And, um, Another group, it's a group of Rwandan Quakers that has been doing this amazing trauma healing work. And they um, work with both survivors and ex-perpetrators together. They do trauma workshops for them together so that they realize that whichever side you were on, whether you survived atrocities or committed atrocities, there was a traumatic impact and the need to heal from that experience. You were either dehumanized or you participated in, in dehumanizing. And um, so they had done this tiny little project with that and we were able to help them really expand their model. Um, and then they take two people from each community, an ex-perpetrator and a survivor, and train them to be kind of peer counselors for their communities. We had one extraordinary example where the people who asked to do this and who ended up being selected was Boniface and Marie. Boniface had actually killed members of Marie's family, killed someone, was part of a group that had killed her children. They ended up reconciling. She, I mean, it's a long process. I don't mean to make it sound easy. She was able to forgive him. She said because he acknowledged what he had done out of the bottom of his heart, she was able to forgive him from the bottom of her heart. And they became the, um, the peer counselors, they call them helping companions for their community. And then the third group was a, um, 
uh, the, the Genocide Museum in the capital, and they work with youth. So the same community, in the same communities, we have the dialogue clubs, the trauma healing workshops, and the youth from the two sides, Hutu and Tutsi, the two ethnic groups, doing all kinds of peace projects together, building houses for genocide widows. They started collecting reconciliation stories and making videos of them because it's the horror stories that tend to live on and they felt it was really important to get these positive stories out in media. And then we brought representatives of those communities into the Capitol to speak to parliamentarians and members of the ministries to be able to tell them what's working, what's not working, what they, what's needed for community reconciliation to proceed. But I'm, I, I'm in awe of what people like uh, those people in Rwanda are able to do. And I feel that the work, that the desire to do it is there. I feel like that's, as outsiders, what we bring is a bit of a, a catalyst of creating an environment to support this happening, of bringing these different organizations together, of a lot of encouragement, sometimes some skill building around dialogue, facilitation, etc. But we're always trying to put them in the lead. And I feel like they have so much to teach the rest of the world. So one thing we're really trying to do at Karuna Center is to bring stories from places like Rwanda here, because I feel like we still, you know, in our justice system, it's still so based on narratives of, you know, vengeance right and and what uh it's just extraordinary what the rwandans are are in fact and others able to do yeah i mean those stories um are so important because it it creates a possibility and in, in in a person's imagination right. of, of what can happen and how if these people um i don't know if you saw that movie i think it was called best of enemies um, with it, yeah, so it was, you know, during basically the civil rights movement and this KKK, um, who's almost the leader and mm. this woman that was, you know, the, their school burned down, um, and they were trying to integrate the schools and desegregate. And it's a true story about how they mm. ended up becoming friends and they had to go through this sort of mediation process where they had to sit together again, day after day yeah. after day, um, and I just watched that movie and I, I, I have that in my heart when I think of a, a situation that I couldn't get over. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. You create something that doesn't seem possible in, in a human mind or heart and, unless you see the example of it that's actually yeah. happened. So yeah. I'm so glad those stories are getting out and the youth making those videos I think is really important too. Um, yeah, that generation just has a different perspective. Do you find that? I feel like with that Gen Z and, you know, I guess, I don't know, the next one's coming up is called right. Alpha or something, that they're just like, what do you mean we're different? Like, right, is, right. Do, do you have a sense of that when working with youth? It sounds like a, a bunch of the work is with youth too. Yeah, I mean, I would say that our work is very, it's broad, sometimes with youth, sometimes with older people, it, it's broad, but it feels really important, especially in the parts of the world where we work to bring youth in, because there's 
a huge surge in the youth population. And youth, mm. by the way, in those parts of the world seems to be defined as anywhere up to 35. So it's a broad definition of youth. But yes, it's really important to engage them. And they, they tend to, you know, they're on the internet, those who have access, of course, that's not true across the board, but those who have access are, and they're, they're more likely to see themselves as, you know, wanting to participate in, in, in the global world, right. as feeling less tied to my ethnic identity. Um, though in some, some places, those, those still stay very, very strong. But in a place like Rwanda, also, uh, parents have a real hard time talking with their kids about the genocide. And I think this is very common after, you know, devastation of that kind. One heard about it a lot after the Holocaust. So it's very difficult, I hear, from the, the perpetrators to tell their children honestly what they participated in. It's very hard for the survivors to talk about it. So the youth often experience this kind of wall of silence and are bothered by that. And then in the case of, you know, these days, what do youth do if they don't understand what happened is they go on the internet and there's all sorts of crazy stuff out there about alternative ideas of what it was all about or what happened. And so they get very confused. So it's also just been really important um, to engage the youth. And we also had uh, intergenerational dialogues in which the youth talked about their desire to understand what happened and their need for the older generation to be able to speak openly and honestly about it with them. And in a couple of instances, as a direct result of those intergenerational dialogues, some ex-perpetrators came forth and volunteered to show where remains had been buried. And that is a huge thing in Rwanda because it's huge to be able to, um, you know, then dig up remains and bury them with respect and proper ritual. So that was just momentous for that to happen. And that was a direct outcome of this kind of plea from the youth of, please talk to us about this. Um, and also for the youth to feel like they could participate in something really positive for, um, the rebuilding of their communities and then spreading those positive stories. Yeah, that healing um, through ritual and through the storytelling of just and the truth speaking. I think, you know, we hear a lot about um, intergenerational trauma and how, you know, I have a friend whose parents or grandparents were in the Holocaust and she, you know, carried a lot of that trauma in her body and, yeah. um, you know, comes down to her parents and then down to her and didn't understand um, yeah. because people wouldn't really talk about it. Her, her you know, grandmother didn't want to talk about it. Um, yeah. And so she had to do all that investigation herself. And so it's nice to hear that, that, I mean, how much courage to take, especially I mean, on both sides, you, you're the one that's received the trauma or you're the one that's the perpetrator. Yeah. I, uh, what a story to tell and how, how much courage it takes. So Yeah, I remember one uh, ex-perpetrator saying how his family really discouraged him from speaking the truth. 
but he stood up at a community memorial. They have a, a, a yearly memorial and talked about what he did. And he said that I'm not one bit proud of what I did, but I'm proud to be able to speak about it. And I wanted my children to know the truth. I, yeah. And that's doing my part to make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah, that, that's good. Especially in these cases, like, we, you know, we're talking about World War II, where it's incited and, yeah. um, you know, people are expected to join and, and to yeah. be part of the whole thing. And we're so, frightened they would be killed if they didn't. And right. in many instances, they were. Exactly. So I guess let's, let's take this little step since we're talking about courage and to anthroposophy and how you sort of see any of the connections for you in your worldview and your perspective when you do this work, how, how it comes into play for you. Sure, sure. And, you know, I think for me, I've been both with psychotherapy and then with this work, I'm, I'm sort of naturally drawn to uh, fields where anthroposophy hasn't already been applied and can't so easily be directly applied because I like to live in questions. So for me, it's pretty broad, but I think when I first accompanied Paula Green to Bosnia and watched her, her work, her dialogue work, and watched what was happening in the room, I just had the strong sense that what was happening was that through this work, people were experiencing, um, experiencing their common humanity in a really profound way. And there, you know, Steiner talked about how, you know, since the end of the last century, we're entering this age that he called the age of Michael, where, where uh, it's a time to recognize what's universal, and there's this kind of cosmopolitanism that's really essential to that. There is a reaction, a fear of it, which can be harking back to old tribal or blood identities, a kind of resistance, but that there's a call to, to move be beyond that, to uh, both, there would be a growing individualism, but also this growing sense of what connects us uh, universally as human beings. And I saw, it was so palpable to me in the room. And so I saw that, oh my gosh, in these contexts where human beings have seen the worst that people are capable of doing to each other, there's also sort of out of the ashes of that, the possibility to discover their common humanity in a very real and palpable way. And that is what really drew me to the work, I have to say. And it's what I see when I witness the work in Rwanda, you know, with people like Boniface and Marie, who could actually come together despite of what happened between them. Um, and I mean, another little example in Sri Lanka, I won't go into the details, but we worked with, uh, after their civil war, we worked with um, religious leaders, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, and Christian religious leaders who were in an area that were at the front, on the front lines of that 17-year uh, civil war. And I remember after this dialogue process in which each group 
had spoken about the atrocities that their group had experienced. Um, we hadn't asked them to, but that's what they did. And we had a coffee break. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what next? You know, they've shared the sort of really deep suffering. And I remember at the coffee break, seeing a Hindu priest, a Buddhist monk, and a, a Muslim imam walking arm in arm. They didn't have a common language because Sunala and Tamil are not related. And we had done everything with translation. And they were grinning from ear to ear. And just this sense of human connection that had actually come out of just sharing the pain of what had happened. Mm -hmm. I remember actually somebody, another Sri Lankan at that point saying, I think we are all in one big pot of suffering. So mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of that possibility that to me is um, so important uh, to our time. You know, Steiner talks about it almost uh, moving towards a new sacrament where, we, where there can be this profound encounter of one human being to another. Um, and where, you know, in the far, and that we're developing this capacity for empathy, which he says, in the far future will be so strong that we will not find peace or happiness if another, you're nodding, you know this, if, if another human being is unhappy, um, if someone else is hungry, we will feel their hunger. If someone else is suffering, we'll feel their suffering as our own. So I feel like that's a long, long way off. The, as humans, we have much to learn about empathy, but I'm, I'm very drawn to processes that I feel support uh, the development of that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I do love that quote. I have to pin it down exactly, but I always think, you know, we have so many dystopian pictures of the future, but and maybe that sounds dystopian to people to think, you know, I wake up in the morning and if I know you're hungry or you're in pain, I'm going to feel that pain. But that is a utopian future in a way, because it means that I can do something for you. I can help to change that. And I honestly think with all the images that we have access to right now, the, the global picture, international, you said cosmopolitan awareness, you know, if, if, if there's a refugee um, that dies and washes up on shore. I, me I remember that, that picture of that. that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm half Syrian, so that child washed wow. up. And, um, you know, what a way to be able to see and feel the pain that we didn't have access to before. Yeah. Um, and so uh, hopefully as our empathy develops and our ability to... Um, see and feel what others are, are happening. We, we won't just need the pictures. Those pictures will just arise within us because it's happening in the world. So I think, yeah. I think what you're yeah. saying is really great. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, we can feel this other tide, right? Of increasing fracturing, factionalization of divisions growing ever stronger around the world in this country as well. And this kind of, um, clinging to these sort of polarized identities, right? That's, that's very different from that. And 
I think out of fear, you know, I think there's this sort of false security and clinging to this very defined identity. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, in anthroposophy, we talk about this being of love so much and, and also talks about this being of Sophia, this wisdom, this knowledge yeah. of what that means. So not just a head understanding of that, but actually a, a, an embodiment of it. And yeah. um, so if that is between us, I mean, that would create a polarization. People are afraid of that. Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to just give you a, a funny example. Sure. <laughs> Maybe you can help me work it through. So yeah. I was in, I think I got to a good place about it, but our, our town is just starting to reopen. Um, again, we're in this pandemic right now. And I went downtown to get some gifts for these women that worked on the Sacred Gateway Conference. We have a, this conference on death and dying we just did. I was the only person in the store and the woman in there, I had my mask on and she didn't have hers on. She sort of explained to me why she didn't have it on. You know, this mask is sort of a political statement now. It's kind of crazy. Right. Um, but then a few other women walked in and they started to talk about the governor of um, California. And one way or another, they were talking about the governor and I was having opposite feelings about it. I thought in my head, I was like, I'm not going to shop in here anymore. Like, I can't believe... Well, this woman had been so nice to me the whole time. She was like giving me extra tissue paper. She was thanking me for shopping. And then I was like, wow, that's not the right gesture. I shouldn't not shop in her store because her political view is different than my political view or her experience of this. So I don't know. Can you just help me out with that a little bit? I feel like <laughs> I, came, I came to an okay resolution, but I know in the next few months, because we're, we're in May now, we have a presidential election coming up in November, and wherever people are on the side of this, we've got this coronavirus, we've got people worried about the economy, we've got people without jobs, we've got more hate crime happening, all, all kinds of things. What, what can we start to do within ourselves and in our communities that can help uh, mitigate this? Well, so. first, let me ask, you said you came to an okay resolution. What did you come to? Well, I just, I was like, no, I'm still going to come in here. That's a human being. Like, right. I, I just decided to choose love in that situation and not let the external circumstances dictate how I felt about her. Like, I wanted to see her through my heart instead of just through my ears or my my like, you know, skin, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, ow, that, that pricked my skin. Oh, ouch. That hurt me. What she just said about the governor. And I was like, you know, where's right. my heart about her? Um, right. that might've hit me on my surface, but it didn't get in. It doesn't have to go further than that. And I'm not going to probably have a discussion with her. I don't, I don't know if that's yeah. helpful, but anyway, so yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think what you describe is, is a huge part of it of like, we get very reactive very quickly and don't really uh, focus on the other person um, as a full-blooded human being. I, I think for me, and obviously not in every situation, you don't maybe want to have a long discussion in, in the store, especially with your mask on, but um, <laughs> I think asking questions of inquiry, I think we just don't do that enough. And it's really hard for me as well. I mean, I have strong political views in this country and to really start to ask open-ended questions about why somebody thinks the way they do, you know, well, what is it about the governor that, that bothers you? Or what is it about that? Or, or what in your past experience has kind of shaped that for you? 
And I think then what, what we notice actually in our dialogues is things become much less black and white. The gray areas, the sort of ambiguities and ambivalences start to become much more there and there starts to be more common ground. I, I read a very interesting study that was about, you know, some social psychologists asked both Republicans and Democrats how they thought the other party perceived their ideas on a number of real hot and button issues. And what the study found was that both Democrats and Republicans see the other party as much more extremist than they actually are. And I found that very, very telling. Right. So, you know, it's not to say that there aren't those more extremist polls, but I think there's so much in our media that actually encourages that and promotes that kind of polarization. And that if you actually can get past that and just start to talk to people and have much more open conversation about their ideas, it's once more common ground starts to emerge. And I know that's certainly something we experience in our, in our dialogues overseas. Yeah, I, I'm just imagining this. Um, well, someone should at least start a YouTube channel that it's just like friends that are on other opposite sides of the political yeah. aisle and they're just sharing. It's, it's just like, you know, we're getting these stories that make a different imagination possible. So yeah. Yeah. And, and thank you for um, putting these other imaginations out there for people and doing this work and making it possible for people to reconcile after absolute atrocities um, you know, and just, just making that possible. One final thing to say, you mentioned how we're having this conversation during this pandemic. And for me, something that the pandemic, I hope is really bringing home is that the, the biggest challenges we face in the world right now are challenges that know no borders. You know, a pandemic knows no borders, climate change knows no borders, and that addressing those problems is going to require a kind of collaboration that um, we're going to have to learn. And if we don't, it'll be at our collective peril. And so it's at this, so I think we need to look out for these opportunities to reach out across divides and and learn to collaborate with people who are very different from us. Uh, wherever we can. Um, Steiner even talked about the need to learn to uh, be as interested in somebody else's point of view as your own. It's not easy to do. It's not always easy for me to do at all, but I, I do think it's critically important. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. And I think he also said that you have to, to understand something, you have to look at it from 12 different points of view. Right. Right. So, so it's interest in the other and that automatically opens you up to another point of view and then find 11 more. And then yeah. maybe you'll really understand what's, <laughs> <Right>. going, <laughs> what's going on, right? What, what sort of projects do you have coming up next? We're working right now in Nigeria on farmer, farmer herder conflicts, in Ethiopia that's in a very interesting political transition. We're hoping to be working in Sudan where 
women have really led the revolution that ousted the longtime dictator. So we're working in Bosnia. We started there 25 years ago and kind of circled back 25 years later. Uh, but we're also doing a very interesting program locally where the Connecticut River Valley, where we are in Western Massachusetts, had a very strong Native American presence. Uh, it was great farming land. And this is the 400th anniversary, 2020, of the pilgrims coming to Massachusetts. And that's being widely celebrated. And we wanted to take the opportunity to really learn about the who was here among Native Americans? What was the world like, their world like before the colonists came? What happened here? Unfortunately, many atrocities did. Who's still here? And I'm learning that the Nipmuc people are still here and their language is still alive. So what can we learn from them? And um, so I'm especially excited about that. What a great project. Thank you. And uh, yeah. here in the United States. Well, um, I'll definitely be directing people to your website and it's um, Karuna Center, K-A-R-U-N-A center.org um, to look at these amazing stories and find out more about the work you're doing. And I'm so appreciative, Olivia. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today on The Anthroposopher. Stay tuned for our next episode.